0: I'm Blake Howard. This is the last twelve minutes of the Mohicans, a Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film The Last of the Mohicans through a very specific lens. Its finale. An old oh boy. Is it an all-timer? of a finale soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones' adaptation of The Gale unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis Madeline Stowe Russell Means Eric Schweig Jodie May Steve Waddington lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann we have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride all culminating with the mountainous director himself Mr. Mann welcome to the show This is the last twelve minutes of the Mohicans. I am Blake Howard, and joining me today is an exceptionally talented and still on hiatus, I believe, uh, Chicago critic. Uh, he's written all across the place. Um, mainly, you would see his whole raft, his entire resume at uh, Metaplex, um, but he's written for RogerEbert.com, and he was a special guest on the One Heat Minute podcast and I was thrilled to see that he not only is a, a stand for for heat but also for the last of the Mohicans and, and is willing to come on this insane journey with me. When I asked him and I read out, uh, <laughs> I read his response to me asking him just said, you're a madman, uh, that's exactly why I wanted <laughs> to talk to my friend today, Mr. Brennan Hodges. Brennan, welcome to The Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans.
1: All right, I am very very excited to be here. The last 12 minutes of Mohican's are pretty good 12 minutes, so I think we're going to have a lot of fun diving in.
0: <laughs> so, take me through you're obviously a heat fan. People have read some of your most amazing work is talking about you're a big Nolan fan too and sort of a crime uh, a, a crime guy, but you you have, you know, uh, one of my favorite pieces of yours is D- Dunkirk. Um, uh, some mm-hmm. of your writings on Dunkirk. Where does this where does Michael Mann and his dalliance into this period sweeping, you know, historical melodrama sit on your list of Michael Mann. Because I guess that's one of the things that sort of semi lured me back to this conversation is this is probably his most you know, other arguably other than the keep, this is his most different movie he's ever really produced and is so lauded and successful, but he kind of always then continues to dabble in contemporary crime.
1: Absolutely. Um, so full disclosure, Mohicans is relatively low on my list of Michael Mann movies, but Michael Mann is one of my favorite filmmakers. Yes. And therefore me putting Mohicans relatively low, I'm still giving it like four out of five stars or four and a half out of five stars. right? Yes. Um, and I think for me, it's like right on that barrier. I give it like If I did a letter grade, it would be like an A minus for me, but it's like a glorious A minus. And it's interesting because I'm fascinated by filmmakers who branch into very new territory, or they have like an outlier in their filmography, and there's this question of how much of them is in there versus how much of that is different. And you brought up Dunkirk, and I think that's a great example where I think like half the critics, who reviewed that movie almost said Dunkirk is totally new for Christopher Nolan. It's a different genre. And then there's all these other people who were like, "No, this is the most Christopher Nolan has ever <laughs> Christopher Nolan." And in a weird way, I think that applies to Mohicans for Michael Mann because a lot of his really classic themes um, just rear their head at some point in last of the Mohicans. Um, man versus society. Man versus not only nature, but his own nature and reckoning with his own identity and how he fits or doesn't fit into the systems around him. Um, so it's very interesting because it is, a, I think the thing that differentiates last of the Mohicans actually isn't the, on like the thematic level. It's really like tone and style. And I do not even so much the period stuff. Cause of course that's a little superficially different, but I'm thinking more, this is the melodrama. Yes. Okay.
0: This An-an-an-a-b- is Unabashed. Like Unabashed.
2: Yes.
1: No. Exactly. And you see so few of those, period, let alone by this, quote-unquote, hard man, <laughs> yeah. filmmaker. It, right? So it's very interesting in that sense. And yet, um, uh, one of my favorite critics, Mahalo D- uh, D- D- Dargis, who was on your podcast, basically said, Michael Mann his movies have this big bent of romance through them. They're very romantic movies on on one way or another. And I think Michael Mann might be in love with the romances and his movies, maybe more than some audience members are, (laughs) but here it's like you, you see that side of him come to the surface and he's totally unapologetic about it. And I think that is what lets me connect to it so much because you're just enjoying him, enjoying that genre.
0: Yeah, the genre, it's the right space for it. And it's like the setting to, you know, to focus on what we're focusing in. It's the la- the final conclusion of this movie, and I said it was a big call. You actually said to me before we started recording that it was a big call. I, I think the the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans are one of the greatest endings in movies. Um, and-, and I think largely because, um, and we talk about how sort of nakedly yourself a filmmaker can be, is all riddled throughout Michael Mann's wonderful work is just, uh, and especially in the evolution of his work, the very sort of best stuff that people still cling on to in it is just these pure cinematic expressions and this shorthand of, you know, really classic silent cinema um, that has deeply influenced him. You know, he talks about two of you know two out of his top ten favorite films of all time are Battleship Potemkin and The Passion of the Joan of Arc. And so it's yeah, like he's a big Dreyer guy, a big Dreyer, guy. and there's huge. You know, th- th- there's faces as canvases, and then just movement and action. And this entire sort of conclusion scene is that, and the emotions couldn't be bigger. And and not in a ham-fisted, you know, um, you know, post nailing it with Pacino, let's go a wild one, as he uh, so aptly put in um the conclusion of the one eight minute podcast. But it's like it's there is they're big brush strokes, the canvas is huge, we're on top of a world where like literally the wilderness we're peeking out of this wilderness that has been choking us, suffocating us, making us sweat, um, and these figures who are just passing through. These huge things happening, this you know, massive shifts in political ideologies and colonial you know powers going head to head and looking towards a future where you've got to decide whether you're going to stick with what is ultimately. Um, you know, p- perhaps more noble to your culture, or your, or more apt to how you fit into your culture. But then also, if you don't rail against that culture, you're going to die. Like the inevitability is mm-hmm. is is just reeking. And so, I uh, yeah, I think that in this moment, in that big canvas, and I and and two in Dunkirk, it's, um, you know, they get they get to be the their most naked, I guess, when they're when you've got a bigger canvas to play with and there's that just sort of at least Mm -hmm. the underpinnings of a history that you've got to contend with
1: yeah uh, absolutely and speaking of historical pieces um mohicans i think is thematically somewhat similar with public enemies yes another movie where they're both very much about individuals standing up against this wave of change yes whereas in here it's colonialism and there's this big war going on around the Native American population. Here it is very different in public enemies where it's the uh, kind of the um, uh, uh, technology yes. is really on the rise and it's outmoding criminals. And he's a, Michael Mann is obsessed with men being pushed to the brink of society and this, how will they bounce back to some extent? Um, and it's just fascinating to watch how he deals with that. And particularly because all the characters in the movie who are coded as, let's say, good, almost seem disinterested to a certain extent by these changes. You know, um, Hawkeye just doesn't, he doesn't care.
0: No. And and you're so right is there's um, a great Matt Zoller-Zeitz theory where both f- fans of Matt, there's a great Matt Zoller-Zeitz oh, yeah. theory that he says, um whoever says the title of the movie is who the movie's about and 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 <laughs> i right. and i would, uh, and i would argue um i would argue that in in maybe Mohegans there's something else to be said which is if you look at the character that is most railing against the change and in fact trying to stay ahead of the wave like it's like trying to stay mm-hmm. ahead of the tsunami that's coming it's magwa and right yeah, at, absolutely right at the precipice of this final 12 minutes when the Sashem deals out his justice to the situation after hearing from Hawkeye, after hearing from Magua, after hearing um, the translation from Steve Waddington's Major Duncan Hayward. When he's dealing out his justice, Magua is so frustrated that he's just not adhering to this new perspective, this new view, that he curses out the Sashem before he leaves and, and triggers this final sort of magnificent ending and one thing i've noticed and i've uh, one thing i've noticed and i just want to sort of always mention it now in this show is he curses him out in french and Mm -hmm. i just love i just love that the progress is that he won't even curse him out in his native tongue he'll curse him out in french because i'm ahead of you like i'm i'm I'm, i'm gonna i'm gonna adopt the european style i'm gonna go and you know, I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to go and I'm going to live the way that they live. I'm going to exact my revenge. And then I'm going to go and make money. I'm going to grow. My war party is going to adopt all of their things. And it's, it's a double edged sword of tragedy, right? It's like one of them is going to die from extinction. And one of them is, one of them is choosing to die themselves. They're, you know, they're choosing, mm-hmm. choosing a different road um, for survival, but ultimately leads to death.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, here's the thing. I So this is getting into a bigger thing I have with Last of the Mohicans. And, like, I rewatched all of Michael Mann's movies late last year. I think I talked to you about that when I came on for one heat minute. And I saw Mohicans for the first time in, like, God, it has to be more than a decade. And what shocked me is that Last of the Mohicans is an epic yes. of, like, David Lean proportion where it, it but this is a movie with only the good parts
2: <laughs> as you would say
1: because it, it's really like a three-hour movie edited in a way yes. where you only have the most essential scenes it's not even two hours my god no. and I, I bring this up because in a longer movie you'd get so much more background on magua you get so much more background on Hawkeye and all the characters, his father, we'd, we'd be with these people for much longer periods of time before the adventure begins. And it's interesting because I, something that's very strange structurally about the movie is the way of how it switches perspective. Yes. It's not really from the main character's perspective. Nope. There's large sections where we don't follow him at all. We don't really follow a single character from point A to point B. And you can't even really say it's an ensemble piece in a sense where you just follow a set of characters over time and they each have individual arcs. They don't really, all they do is act as in they use actions. It's a movie about men doing things or women doing things. And the interiority is either voiced very literally or it's left as like way back subtext. And what's interesting about that is the movie forces you to confront the fact of what these characters are going through and you have to ponder what their interiorities are Hmm. it doesn't outline exactly why magua feels the way that he does it doesn't exactly show you how he went from uh learning to be so literate and articulate and worldly in a way yes and he's he's it's interesting because he's non-conforming by first being a conformist yes (laughs) and because he's joining the ranks of them in a way that you know, Hawkeye isn't, and then he uses it against them. But my point here is that in a movie with so many different points of view, we're forced to go, why are all these people doing exactly what they're doing? And there's very few movies that are like that, no. um, particularly that are so-called epics, where you're, you get all this exposition, and then you go. Um and so also, that's not what this is.
0: And also, that I uh, love what you said about in lean main, ca- like in a lean film, his characters mm-hmm. are at the very center of everything that's happening when it's happening. Exactly, and and it diminishes even Lawrence of Arabia, arguably the greatest epic ever made. <laughs> you know, it's just sure. pretty much un- you know that's it's. It's, it's like it's, top five for me, it's, so Yeah, it's it's in the, it's in the conversation um the most epic moments even Lawrence traveling across that desert like that's the most epic thing in the universe of that movie when it's happening it's not the war it's Lawrence's wrestle with his legend is the whole movie um and and sometimes there's big war moments that happen around his wrestle with his legend but it's the, it, it, to your point this is a passage this is people moving through things these are the very very you know very assertively moving through massive events and there's huge sways of the film that it's like major duncan Hayward's the main character then gorman yeah. rose the main character mm-hmm. and then even randomly terry kinney's john cameron's the main character for like 5 right. minutes of the movie
1: well, no I'll, I'll even go one step further than that because i think it's like 35 minutes into the movie you get that almost out of nowhere massive epic war scene. Yes. And this is one of the great war scenes, in my opinion. It's not even that long, but the scale of it, Mm. it's outstanding. And it just sneaks up on you because the movie is very small scale up to this point. I mean, you've got the big wide shots and the soaring music, but it's mostly, oh, it's a couple of guys in the woods. And here suddenly you open up to this massive vista of grand action. You don't follow single characters during that scene. It's not like Helm's Deep. Where you have you know multiple point of view characters that it intercuts between that's not what's happening here. it's a montage
3: yes. and hey,
1: he just you already pointed as you pointed out, he loves battleship Potemkin, temkin baby, so <laughs> maybe he's using some of just the extended period of time where hey, here's action, we don't have to follow specific characters um, and he identifies specific people within that, and you know he's not necessarily using Soviet montage, but he's definitely using an extended sequence where we don't follow anybody in it so it almost depersonalizes the conflict yes and then we return to the characters and it just gives this whole feeling where the movie begins and ends with these gorgeous shots of trees and like a canopy of trees and mountains and it's almost abstract it's michael Mann's, of course it's abstract but (laughs) it's abstract and so the movie is bookended by an abstraction of nature man hardly even fits into this Theme. So there's this very interesting thing where the movie's constantly showing man at the periphery. Yes. Man at the periphery of nature, man at the periphery of these big events. And they're not motivating the central action. They're going through it. And that's what's, in my opinion, the best thing about the movie is the heart of the movie is not just this romance, but the pseudo rivalry. Yes. And it's like that has almost nothing directly to do with the big epic battle stuff they 're all related, but they 're not causal, yes, to one another and that 's so unusual it 's bizarre unlike like let 's say heat, where every single character decision has consequence after consequence after consequence it 's like a ripple effect yes here it 's the opposite and it's, it's that you know we 're talking about what's different about Mohicans, maybe we just found one of the bigger things that differentiates it from his other movies
0: and there's a coat there an um... There's what I like to call like an exhalation moment in the final twelve minutes, of the Mohicans at the end of the sort of climactic battle sequence with Chikatgook and magua and it's and and Hawkeye embraces Cora and hugs her after she's just sort of she's been hanging back from the battle you know probably as per his instruction, which we don't see on camera to say stay back she stays back and he finally reaches her. And we know that he's okay and we assume that Cingachica's okay and he's on his way. And the camera pauses for a second. It's just another beautiful beautiful piece of staging from Man and Mr. Dante Spinotti where uh, it's it's like a profile shot uh, as Mr. Day-Lewis is turning his Hawkeye against this outcropping of rock. And it's one of those cross sections, right? It looks like something's been broken down, like a bit of an avalanche of rock. And you literally see the veins. You see time passing in this massive rock face. And it's just this underscoring moment of like, we are deeply inconsequential things. And it's kind of the real tragic romance of it because it's so beautifully portrayed and it's not even said or articulated in a word. But to your point, it's like, Right then and there, those trees, those canopies, those mountains, these things that exist on a tectonic level, not on a you know uh, on an aesthetic or a, like a, a, a on a subjective level as people understand, because <laughs> they're so expansive right. and and. But in that moment, I just always like you know every single thing you take detail of in this in this film and everything and in his films are so rewarding to do that, and I just remember and now it's just like imprinted in my brain. Of him just standing there, and just all the veins of that rock. I imagine if a geologist was looking at it, they could tell you how right. old that mountain was. Like that's how yep. int- intentionality is there. But it's just looking at it and going, "This is time passing. This is this is you know this is millennia that has passed just in that mountain face that's behind him, and he just happens to be profiled against it. And that's that's this movie, and that's and that's Michael Mann's, uh, I guess, intent with with this entire story,
1: mm-hmm. right? And I think that's summarized by the ending, right? Yes. About how there's this sense of defeat. There's a sense of love and union. But there's an element, too, of what was this for? It was Has it been folly? And they're looking over, again, that bookended image of just this great vista. And on one hand, you think, well, is this a hopeful ending? And I, I think that, obviously, it's going to be melancholy. But I think on a deeper level, it's just, they're almost surrendering to nature. And I'd be remiss not to bring up The Revenant, which I I talked to you about before, about how I think this is his take on a similar movie. Yes. It's a mythic sweep um, where man is thrust deep into nature and they even share basically the same opening scene. Yes. Um, Not the opening battle, uh, but the opening scene in terms of it's like super... Um, well-equipped, skilled people in nature hunting. Yes. And they disappear into the forest to try to hunt. And they're very similar movies. And, and a, guess and what, Michael a, Mann and a, loves a, Revenant. And
0: a son, a son is killed by an enemy, and then yep. then there's a tireless, ferocious pursuit to hunt him down and exact vengeance. Um, right. Um, and there's, there's no... Uh, I don't think... I don't think if you spoke to Alexandra, uh, Alexandra um, I don't think he'd say right. that he wasn't a Michael Mann fan. I think he's a fan. Sure. I definitely. I, th- think, I think so. I, I mean, just a little bit. He's a fan. A little
1: bit. A little bit. There's a lot in there. I mean, they are, I know that they are friends. They're friends too. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, they're friends. Yeah, and I know that Mann even gave notes on The Revenant, and I always imagine that during those note sessions, <laughs> Mann was like. Like seeing some of the footage and just thought, all right, <laughs> I, I think I know where some of this is coming from. Um,
0: yeah, but I think. I, I imagine, no. I imagine I, his notes great. are much more detailed than any other human beings' notes. Can you imagine? Oh, like, I, can you imagine? It's rigorous. <laughs> I, yeah. think, I think man. It, I think man's notes are like. Okay, have you thought about the different? political systems at play with each of the different <laughs> cultures you're representing. what? <laughs> I just like, right. what? I'm just thinking about the bear, man. I'm just thinking about the bear. Right, right, right. Um but yeah, no um, But I know I really loved I really love the Revenant. And it's it's I really love the Revenant. Um it's it's much more of a it's it's more of a classical to your point, it's more classically structured in that you never leave yeah. the kind of myopic view of the person who is at the very center of it and there's a couple of little dalliances and they're more like camera um camera and uh geog uh action geography
1: understanding
2: mm-hmm. of scenes so it's more
1: like uh, i would equate it to some of what you know tarkovsky does yes and yes. i don't know stalker or, or under Rublev or something where the camera just lingers and for the record i infamously amongst many of my friends and film buddies hate the revenue but, <laughs> but uh and many of them in fact some of my closest friends like adore the movie so believe me this is there's always a friendly rivalry between <laughs> us um but I, I do think that that part of what is happening there is very much that and style which man himself doesn't actually use i mentioned last time i think man comes from more of a tradition of melville and even antonioni yes in how uh he uses this, these abstract shapes, both within nature and society, uh, architecture. It's yes. such a presence in Antonioni and in man. Whereas in, in Yuritu, comes from a more metaphysical tradition, I think. Yes. Um, but this brings up a, a great thing that I wanted to... Uh, I, I had to go into it on uh, this podcast, because have you ever seen... You've probably studied man's movies more than... Many people, certainly recently. And (laughs) can can you think of any other scene in any of his movies that, other than The Keep, let's just compartmentalize that for a minute, uh, that are as busy stylistically as the last 12 minutes of Last of the Mohicans? Because he uses highly uh, quick cuts, high high quick cut action throughout. He very rarely has shots that linger. Um, Often he'll cut from a gesture to a close-up of a weapon, hmm. almost this kinetic tableau where it's, you, you can't really see the full picture. He's just thrusting you into the action. But then there's also uh, wide shots. There's also slow motion, repeatedly slow motion. And there's many, many shots of human beings falling through the sky off of cliffs. <laughs> yes. And not just one angle, it's, there's a low angle when the sister jumps. Yes. It's a low angle looking up that follows down. Um, there's point of view shots in there, multiple. And he, I, don't, I can't think of another single scene where he just danced between like every single technique you learn about in like the first day of a film class. Oh, here's what all this stuff directors can do. And man was like, all right, I'll do all of them <laughs> in the last 12. And so my first question is to you, can you think of a scene that actually is that busy and i have a follow-up point i want to make about it
0: no i I can't and the the most the closest it gets is the shootout scene in heat that's the closest Mm -hmm. it gets uh to that um and even in the final shootout in miami vice um or or even the extraction moments in miami vice all those action Mm -hmm. sequences to that point if we talk about sort of big set piece action they all later seemingly seemingly in the later man films and and this is the kind of we can get into it in your follow-up point but i think they all tonally and pace wise adhere to a more stringent tempo in Mm -hmm. the other examples so in the heat uh, uh, in, in the shootout scene, the centerpiece of Heat, the tempo is unrelenting, and you could—it's metronomic. You could just boom, ba, boom, boom, ba, boom, and even in the yep. other Miami Vice scenes or the extraction scenes, although they might have an, a, like a stuttering tempo to some of them because it's a little bit more organic, the spaces are more closed in, or they're really ferocious for a quick second and then they calm. Um, all yep. of them adhere to a tempo, and the one thing about this—this this exercise, this sort of this this 12 minutes and why I think that it's so perfect is because exactly what you're talking about. It's almost as if we are traveling through different characters and emotions and we're distilling how people are feeling just in gestures and, and killing dialogue, almost completely eliminating dialogue out of everything that happens in that last 12 minutes. Um, He's like flexing every single uh, trick of the trade to imbue like the energy of which character we're following in that specific moment. So for Uncas's whole scene, it's like, you know, really ferocious and fast. And then with Magua, there's like tragedy. And then there's, you know, you know, there's the epic tragedy of Chingachgook. And then like vengeance. And then with Hawkeye, there's this clinical thing. And then with Cora, there's this devastation. And Alice is just mm-hmm. this beautiful. Like it's just, all the notes of the symphony are all going, and it's just every single trick. He's just playing with everything.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's exactly what he's doing. And I think it's part of what we were talking about before about how this is a melodrama. Yes. How the heck do we amplify every possible emotion? It reminds me of um, the, the closest parallel I can think of is how Jim Cameron goes from mastering the language of action and suspense and thrillers and genre in Terminator and Aliens, and then he goes and makes Titanic. Yes. And he takes every single tool he ever learned to make. It's broad. It's as broad as it gets. These are archetypes. They're barely even people. Yes. And just he spins the emotions. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And um, there's like a Jungian thing going on <laughs> where like it it triggers all these things in our subconscious where we're like, that's me. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm in love. And and that's awesome. And not many filmmakers can really operate that successfully on that broad of a level, but he's not just going big. He's using every single tactic in terms of, um, as a technician, as a storyteller. And that's exactly what I feel like man is doing with last of the Mohicans, particularly that beautifully scored last 12, 13, 14 minutes where it's just one piece of music coursing over That whole section of the movie and he uses every single tactic that i think he he knows how to use maybe even too many and i think if he was (laughs) less skilled let me i I think part of it is and i think some people accuse the movie of this although i disagree it's so easy for this to feel overwrought yes it would have been so easy for it to tip the wrong way because this amount of look the more you add on that and just in terms of style, the more contradictions or the more that it might not make sense, just geographically. Yes. Um, but it doesn't, and I think the uniting factor is that score.
0: Yeah, the score. It's
1: the way that it's unified, and it throws you around. You're you. It's it's a weird thing where every few seconds you don't quite know what the next shot will be. No. But just stylistically, but you know, the score is going to guide you through it. And I think it's a perfect situation where the filmmaker is going for it in a way that very few filmmakers do. I would even say recklessly, because I think he's almost undisciplined and he's, <laughs> in the level he's just going for it. Because I, I can't think of many filmmakers, period, who would use this many different things in a single scene, but the score brings it together, the edit brings it together, and his just confidence brings it together and it soars. And I agree with you. It's amazing. It's the best part of the movie. It's
0: amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's also, it's instinctive in a way that he's not associated with him. Mm-hmm. It's so... It is, you know, it's very intuitive. It's so intuitive. It's like, uh, what emotion, what precise emotion do am I wanting to be on this roller coaster? And so, with you know, in the emotional trajectory here is so critically important. And then we talk about just every single character moment. It's just pure silent cinema. It's just every single character gets an incredible moment. But it's not what man does in this final 12 minutes is he tells a sweeping story silently using Trevor Jones's arrangement of the Gale like you know Trevor Jones just like right. rings that track into <laughs> he's just riding it like a giant wave, like it's just an endless wave that he's just riding it doing absolutely everything that he can up and down scaling through playing around with it it's just a complete masterwork but the things that there's a there's sort of an unabashed like brutality too like he's not the violence is jarring and completely disturbing the the you know uncas's body sliding down the mountain face alice's more sort of um delicate and devastating angelic dive. You know, Marg was mm-hmm. bloody handed, the beautiful bloody-handed gesture, you know, softness, but with his hands covered in the blood of her lover. Come to me. Everything will be okay. Literally between death or the guy who's got the blood of your lover's hands on his hands mm-hmm. at the moment he's gesturing right. to you. Um and and I think that that that's the pairing of these great moments and and no and just the intuition to know Chingachuk barely says a word in the entire film. He says probably more words in the entire film, as Russell means, the you know titanic adv- um, activist right. that he was, says the more words in the final coder of this movie than he says in every other part of it. But then that real wonderful Peckinpah-esque choice of him streaming around that rock face and opening his mouth and screaming, and it doesn't matter. You can't hear it. It's nothing. It's those choices. Just every single... But you hear... You hear Hawkeye have to scream out, you know. He he gets the scream, but he won't let Chingachuk and and even Cora gets a scream, but it's only half heard. It's almost like Alice right. just caught a glimpse of that scream from the other from the other part of the mountain range and that's it. She just heard a a flicker and then it's just all yeah. ferocity. So yeah, no, I agree. It's there's an intuition at play. And like you said, confidence. Man, you know, we talk about his run after this, you know, three three of arguably his greatest films and, you know, I would say mm-hmm. easily three of the best American films in the 90s. You know, you go from there. Uh, yeah. or, or ever, <laughs> or ever.
1: Yes, agree. Let's just go there. Let's go there. Blake. I, I think we both can go there. I think we're well-known, man. People, <laughs> go <laughs> no, big or go home, my friend. I, I
0: would, I would argue. Look, you, you, you don't have to tell. I, I'm, I've, been, <laughs> I, I've spent 177 episodes arguing about heat. Um, but no, I would. Right. I I think un, unabashedly, there he's you know arguably his three best, three of the best American films ever made. And like you said, it's all confidence and intuition. You know, this is his purest expression of an epic. You know, someone was asking me, hadn't seen it. Have you, uh, have you seen last of He gets no. I'm like, have you seen Barry Lyndon? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, it's Barry Lyndon sexier and all of the boring bits taken out. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's, it's a masterwork. He is, is the modern crime epic. Um, and then the insider right. is the insider is this, metatextual palimpsest of everything that new hollywood paranoia films wanted to do and just said hey you know how we were scared of the governments well corporations are kind of doing that too um and you right. know later on when you people are starting to make adaptions of the um the cambridge analytica stuff in facebook i think the right. the foundational text they might want to start having a look at is the insider um yeah, yeah there's a debt there th- there's there's Con- like it's so funny the f- great filmmakers you and I p- appreciate many of them who just go on these runs and it's like a, a mix of like confidence and 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 content that they're covering and this final you know this distillation in that final twelve minutes is just like and again some some people have gone oh have you seen Last of the Mohicans and they go oh I must go for four hours it's a Michael Mann film it's a it's a period right. out. and I'm like no it's under two which is incredible it's incredible I love that you brought that up
1: it's crazy stylistically and i mean so when i saw it um going back to last fall what blew me away is i can think of so few movies that go into the main thrust of the plot so early it's like eight minutes in yes and they're in the woods they're running and there's a big action scene, it's like eight or ten minutes. It's crazy. Like most movies, even two hour movies would take a longer period of time to do that. It just throws you in there and it all climaxes with the ending. And it's one of those movies where it's always in the sense of rhythm and it's always in the sense of build up. And if the climax, if the crescendo doesn't hit the notes it has to it's one of those things where the rhythm for the whole movie retroactively would suffer. Yes. In your head, you might enjoy the imagery. And by the way, it is absurd that Dante Spinotti did not even get an Academy Award <laughs> nomination for this. I think he got the guild. He got yeah. the guild nom. Yeah. But the Academy skipped him. It is crazy. This is some painterly shit. <laughs> um, it, like you brought up Barry Lyndon, and yeah, it, it is that painterly. Um, Particularly the opening scenes in The Forest.
0: Oh my god.
1: That if you th- that freeze frame them that freeze. Put them frame, on a wall. That
0: freeze frame image which they do. Like it's essentially a live freeze frame of yes. the bridge and the carriage that Cora and Alice Monroe are riding into Major Duncan Haywood is and then and just Terry Jones just like it's almost like a, as, a an orchestral needle drop, like just needle dropping, yeah. going, "Hey, this isn't a painting. This is real shit." Um, that yeah. is, I mean, there's there's maybe there's maybe five other shots in the whole of the '90s that were as good as that shot. <laughs> there's
1: maybe five. Yeah, no, no, for, for sure, for sure. And like, I, I'm in awe of the movie. I do wish it had a better Blu-ray transfer. Um, well, that is that
0: is what we're you know in in Australia. Um, And that's the reason this project exists. There is an, uh, I'm very happy to say that, you know, those of us who are still punching for physical media, there is a director's definitive edition. That's only been available in the United States for the longest time. It's finally being released in Australia and it's coming out as an ultimate cut on Australian Blu-ray which is coming out with the original theatrical edition as well as the director's definitive edition and all the stack of existing, pre-existing um, mm-hmm. um, special features, which is really great because, you know, for for real real fans, um, I love a theatrical edition and, and then director's definitive edition comparison. Like, I will literally be that guy oh, who watches it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will be that guy who watches the original theatrical cut and whether I love it or not, and in this case, I deeply love it. And I think that's one thing mm-hmm. that has been unchanged in any tinkered version of this movie is that final 12 minutes it's just that's the bit that just maintains there's just nothing that changes in that essentially um but yeah that's you know it's it's one of those films that and again i think it's it's evident across all of his work it's when people start to look back at genres that have died down and things what was the last hit that is a period drama set in this time that you know has meaningful things to say um they they reach back to things like mohicans and they're like how does that how do move more movies like this don't exist and it's like well you they they've pivoted they the last one is the revenue right. f- for that and then other people turn it into tv shows that go onto netflix for eight seasons not not 2 hours of masterwork.
1: work yeah no for sure and it is very much one of those movies where even if you hate it yes even if you just can't stand the melodrama which fine different strokes right yes uh, you can find very few more beautiful looking movies period um, and that's always a huge benefit. And I do want to mention, while we're talking about the visuals of the movie, I have to bring up the score uh, again and point out a totally random personal anecdote. Um, my dentist. Uh, I love that personal went to dentist, anecdote that
0: starts with my dentist.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, my dentist is actually, um, what's the word? Uh, he goes to those events where you dress up in the colonial era garb
0: recreations and... or whatever Recre- re- 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 is yeah. Re- yeah yeah
1: yeah well like they say like renaissance fair renaissance and different fairs different yep, yep, phrases yep. but uh but uh, so he would go to all these uh, events and like it, himself in full garb and they'd re- restage battles or go um uh, on boats on uh, the river or something well what do you know every single Day I've ever gone to his dentist office, and I've been going to the same guy since probably seventh grade. And twenty-eight, so do the math. There's only one piece of music ever playing in the background, and that is the score to Last to the Mohicans. It is on a loop, and it's been on a loop for a very, very, Ooh, very long, long time. time. It is the, the only music that's ever been there, and I heard the music there weirdly before I saw the movie. So I didn't know it was the score to *Last of the Mohicans*. I was just like, "Wow, he really thinks dentistry is epic." And <laughs> then I finally saw the movie, and I, I was like, "Okay, well, I get it." Um, but so I have a very personal relationship, <laughs> and so do my teeth.
0: Per- personal with, and, and sense memory relationship, especially the senses <laughs> of your teeth. Look, um, yeah,
1: no, for sure. But it is that iconic, right? And I I can think of relatively few movies where the visual style is as iconic as the score from these period epics that are super short, that are trying to go the length that he does, and in particular with the movie where the dialogue is so straight to the point. Yes. So it straddles this line between being very conventional, very broad, and yet he's defying Little areas of the way these movies are supposed to go. We talked about the exposition, we talked about the visuals, we talked about the music. It is soaring, and the music's the only reason this movie really connects the way that it does. It's one of those Star Wars examples, or if John yes. Williams doesn't, if John do, Williams doesn't do
0: Star Wars, or it's same as Indiana Jones, it's a lot of Williams's work. It's just it's something. It's um, if you if you excised it from the movie, the movie is less.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is this is one of those examples. What we haven't really talked about just how straight to the point the dialogue is. And particularly, we're used to the jargon, poetry, half (laughs) gibberish of a lot of man's movies, particularly his later movies, of which I am a fan. I'm a black hat
0: hat hacker named Hathaway.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Have you gone back to black hat yet? Because I know that you don't love it as much as... I, uh,
0: I I have, I, I have, but I've only sort of part watched it. And that's not because I was, it's because of any other reason that I was just quite tired, uh, but I, it was Mate. around, uh, uh, your, uh, the great Blank Check podcast series uh, on yeah. Michael Mann. I, I of course, listened um, and was a, a big fan and, and heard some great One Heat Minute uh, alumni and new people that I'd wished uh, had could have been a part of our journey, but it was great that they were on that mm-hmm. show um, on there. And, of course, Bilge Ibiri um, was on there for Black yep. Hat, which is the most suitable He's uh, one of the big Black
1: Hat advocates. Of,
0: it's one yeah. Of, one of the greatest of all time. I, I haven't gone back to it yet, but... That doesn't mean that I'm you not need going to. to. I will. It and, is good. And but this is the other annoying thing, Brendan. There is a recut version of Blackout that is available in the United States, and it's not available in Australia. It's just not yep. anywhere. And so, if I could get my hands on the recut version as well, again, I would love to. You know, I, I if Michael Mann has three versions of Black Hat, I want them all on a Blu-ray. I'll pay sixty dollars for the thing. I, I I'm right. I'm in. You know, I'm in if they, get, there's, if they a there's, there's a market. There's a market. And I follow film Twitter. And we are we'll the buy market.
1: It. We're the market for it. Yeah. Um, um but no, what what I, what I was getting at before I went on a tangent about Black Hat, which does tend to happen, occupational hazard, <laughs> um just how he threads the line between defying genre and conforming to genre which is kind of i guess one of the three lines of our conversation today particularly with the the dialogue i mean they have some of those very lyrical exchanges um those romantic exchanges in the woods at night as they happen but beyond that it's like very matter of fact um it's very straight to the point it's there's like a a sense of no fuss about it
0: yeah especially and even in the even in the more romantic lines, there's a sense of no fuss. There's a sense of time is running out. And that's a, one great thing about this movie, I think even in its execution, in its entire form, it's that time is running out. Like time is passing and we need to make the most of whatever time that we're in this world and try and navigate our way around the wards that we're in. You know, there's nothing, you know, people often will quote, you know, stay alive no matter what occurs, I will find you. But I think that there's something equally as a matter of fact is what are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, Miss. You yeah. know, there's nothing more matter of fact and also extremely admirable in that moment of like yeah. that's the most badass line as a as you know right. as, as as a guy and also you know rom- romantic and sort of swashbuckling and a bit roguish, but just amazing. Just going, I'm looking at you. You know what I'm looking at,
1: right? And I'm not being disrespectful. Yeah,
0: absolutely, you know exactly what I'm looking at.
1: It, it works, and to that exact same point, think of the scene where, um, I I forget the character's name, but when Hawkeye's friends have their cabin raided.
0: Yeah, John and Alexander Cameron in that moment, yeah.
1: There you go. And that scene where she gets mad at Hawkeye. Yes. And he just kind of dispassionately wanders off. And we so clearly can read the emotions of both and why they have this cultural divide between them. And instead of there being this great lengthy scene where she's going at him and he's going at her, she just says, "You knew them," and he just looks at her. Yeah, and she knows.
0: Yeah, well, she she she's ripping into him completely, uh, mm-hmm. you know, about how unchristian it is, and they deserve a proper burial, and that you know, she's really going, she's leaning into that noble, sa- you know, that savagery. You know, leaning into the savage
1: background. Yeah, she knows best than the, the the savage guy. Yeah. And then she quickly realizes... And then he says, oh, they're not... The,
0: the, the, again, another great matter-of-fact line. They're not strangers. Yeah. And they exactly. stay... That's all it takes. They're not strangers, and they stay as they lay. Turn around.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's poetry in that, but it's so straightforward, and it's so almost sparse. And I think, too, about the dispassion in other areas. Hawkeye's dispassion, but also Magua. When Magua um, kills the sun at the end his face has like this blankness it's like blank intensity yes it's he doesn't look angry he doesn't look sad it's blank the
0: the whole execution of the kill in the final 12 minutes from magwell is done with like it's almost like robotic i've done this before yeah i've gutted a guy before Mm -hmm. it's fine
1: robotic is exactly the right word
0: and one of the one of the things that i think elevates it so and why wes judy is just a completely under adored incredible performer is because there's a moment when he's doing his robotic actions that he looks down and there's disgust like you've seen him cut a white man's heart out (laughs) die, and be ready to eat his heart and be happy that he's going to do so um but in this moment when he guts Uncas, it's He's like, I don't. This isn't satisfied. This this exchange, as as dark as he is, this exchange, the bloodlust that he's been he's been sort of driven by in this whole thing. There's no satisfaction on for a moment. Like there's roboticism, and then there's this moment where he looks down and he realizes what he's doing, and he kind of oh, he just looks away and pushes him away. He can no longer look. He's, yeah. he's gotten so good at killing that he's killing someone he doesn't really want to. And he wishes he yeah. didn't have to in a way. But he's just like, it's autopilot. You know, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, that's what I think is just so so wonderful about the ebbs and flows of his performance in these final
1: 12 minutes. Is it that, is very delicate. It's very delicate. And while we're talking about him, I, I'm interested in your take. Why doesn't Hawkeye get to kill him? That's huge. They're set up as a rivalry in their first major set piece, the first major set piece of the movie. They stare down gun barrels at each other. Yes. And they're even cross cut where Hawkeye is running towards the battle and the two of them are cross cut. So the, the movie's language codes them as having this kind of rivalry. And then it just, Hawkeye doesn't do it. He doesn't care about him in a direct sense.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's care. I I think their rivalry happens in front, of previous, prior to the twelve minutes of the ending of this movie. Their no, just I, still... No, I agree. Yeah, it's it's it's, but, but you know, it's a wonderful choice. He still choice.
1: doesn't get to do the final blow.
0: No, and, and that's he,
1: so interesting.
0: It is, but I think also. You talk about like. It, we were talking about like how. In the orchestra of this movie, everything about that final score and everything comes through, and it's like. Chingachuk has been the 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 out uh, the their constant like anchor, right? These two boys yeah. and the and the connection. Um and and their and their guide. You know, he's their he's their mentor and he's their guide. And when that happens to Uncas, it's like and you see him scream. It's almost like the whole time. And and it's because and that's what's so great about their confrontation. Chingachikuk isn't wedded to Killing Magua, He just doesn't want to die. And he's wed- He's more wedded to his sons. He's like, what do they want to do? And there's the great scene with Uncas where he looks up the mountain and he, gra- he tenderly grabs his dad's shoulder and he looks up and he's like, he's going. And he just lets him go. He just lets him go with his eyes. Yep. You've got to do what you've got to do. And they follow him because they want to protect him. But he knows in that moment he's got to let him go. But I just think in that... I think the the face off, it's one of those great bait and switch moments for Michael Mann. It's like the face off for these guys isn't in a coffee shop. It's in front of it's it's finally to be judged. They're standing to be judged about their approach. It's a it's a guy, it's an adopted white guy who wants to maintain, you know, maintain the culture of these different tribes and them operate as nations and then be independent and then not be completely slavishly exploited by these two huge colonial powers that are operating there. And then there's a philosophically different person, a person that he could totally have been, like a scout that pivots onto different sides, which says, "No, we can only survive by being like them." And so it's it's really philosophical differences that have brought them together, and his own bloodlust right. around her father. It's not even directly mad at Cora. It's just that that's I don't I don't think they're hero and villain as that. But in that moment when he kills Uncas, like that paternal rage. <laughs> Uh, from Chingachikuk, right. like, makes him an enemy, finally. Like, even the whole way through, he's, he's been a foe. He wants Korra so bad, and they're just there to protect her, like, never really going at him. They've got war parties, etc. These guys are passing through, and as you said, they just pass through these huge warring moments. They just don't want to be there. It's like, you know, you know, furious melee, and then get the hell out of there. Like, they don't want to be anywhere near it. And Magua just tenaciously pursues. But as soon as that Chingachuk moment, when he sees Unka slide down that mountain face, I think that that's, that's like the secret, that's the ace up man's sleeve that none of us even knew that that was what we wanted. <laughs> but it was
1: like, Right, it was no, like, and yeah. I agree. And I, I think that it is shocking, yeah. actually. Because, again, the language of the movie sets them up to have this rivalry, and when there's this rivalry, you immediately think to yourself, well, one has to kill the other, to get some resolution or some catharsis. Yes. And that's not at all the way that man plays it. And I think he's doing something else where at once he's emphasizing Cora and Hawkeye together where their union gets emphasized, where if if Hawkeye's arc ended with bloodlust and anger, it would deprive him of some tenderness he can show in the finale. Yes. And yet for his father, In my industry, and I'm in insurance, and part of my job is that we have to transfer uh, influence. So we call them transfers of influence, where if I have one sales guy or somebody who works with me has to get them to somebody else, we have to do a really good job (laughs) handing off that baton. And this is a massive part of my industry. I think Michael Mann is the exact same thing where how does the movie end? It ends with dialogue from... The father, And I don't think it would resonate if he didn't get to end the movie on his own terms. So there's a certain transfer of influence from Hawkeye to his dad where it simultaneously lets him be more tender with Korra, but it also lets his father maybe earn having the ability to close out the movie.
0: Yeah, uh, just, just as he what, opened what, it. And in a subtle way, just as that, he opened it. Thankful and there's not, there's also one thing that's great about this movie, Brandon. Why I say it's an all-timer of an ending is in their appraisal of one another. When they fight, when they have that melee, and you know he's it's this kind of old boy who's a little bit older than Magua, so he's certainly seen some more miles. And Magua's expecting him to just charge at him. He's still wily enough to to dodge and make and make that happen. But once they stand toe to toe and they're face to face. There's an agreement. Magwa is devastated that he's been bested, but then they look at each other, and it, in this passage, they're like, Russell Means Shikajuku is saying, like, we're not enemies. We shouldn't be enemies. But you've made me do this. like." And was like, yep, like, I know. And there's just this beautiful ebb and flow. We don't want to be enemies in this moment, but here we are. And that's it.
1: Man's movies are full of instances of that type of divide, Yeah. too. Um, I mean, Miami Vice is built to a moment where two characters... characters—and Spoilers, I suppose, if you haven't seen Miami Vice. If you haven't, you should. It's on Netflix and Amazon Prime. (laughs) Um, But it builds to this moment where two characters who want to be part of each other's lives are forced to break apart. Mm -hmm. And many of his movies have that built-in tragedy where two characters who... Uh, or a, a better example is in Collateral. Yes. Where Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise, were Vincent, they could, in another life, if they met at a bar instead of Jamie Foxx, unfortunately, <laughs> driving a taxi cab, uh, they could have been friends. You know? and, and You the, could see that other life. And Vincent biggest, and Hannah, obviously. And,
0: yeah. and Neil, but the biggest bait-and-switch, too, is public enemies. Is yeah. you, you are thinking that Melbourne Purvis... And John Dillinger are on this relentless pursuit for one another. And then who pulls the trigger in an unceremonious way outside of that? It's some it's someone that comes up, but then also earns the end of the movie, earns the close yeah. of the movie. And it's this kind of thing there that, that sometimes the battles or the, the rivalries that we're going to see aren't necessarily set for what we're going to see. And I think the surprise of, like you said, just the, the balls to the wall shift and just the confidence to go now the greatest American hero in Michael Mann's own words, like in his description of like doing Hawkeye as like this, you know, um provincial great American hero many decades before there was even like a real America. Like the so ultimate to speak. mythic figure. Yeah, the ultimate yeah. mythic figure. And he just relinquishes the reins to his dad or the man who'd raised him. Yeah. And it's like just a yeah. pivot. This is how this movie's gonna end. Um yeah, it's pretty incredible. Look, Brennan, thank you so much for being a part of this secondary madness that I've, uh, I have am conjuring together. It's always an absolute joy to talk to you. That was the incredible Brendan Hodges there, a Chicagoan, a cinephile, one of my favorite people to talk to about all things Michael Mann. Brendan is on hiatus as a film critic right now, so if you want to check out him just chatting about films, the best place to find him is at Metaplex Movies on Twitter. You just spell it as it sounds. But uh, Brendan is someone who I love podcasting with, so you'll undoubtedly hear him back if you do listen to podcasts produced by 1 8 Minute Productions. But now, on to my next guest, uh, another huge uh, impact player of the One Heat Minute crew coming back to talk Michael Mann. Getting out of his comfort zone in noir is a tremendous author and, well, really crime aficionado, taking it back to 1757 with us. It's the wonderful Jedi airs. Let's go chat to him. This episode, my guest, is a prolific writer on his terrific blog Hardware Wonderland he's also an author uh whose book Peckerwood is just wonderful and uh it's 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 so dark and grimy and gritty and grotesque that you can almost feel you know the raised sort of grime on your teeth while you're reading it um and I'm even luckier than most because I had a uh a personal note written in the front of mine that said uh, may all your minutes be hot or something to that effect um i have the legend uh and and one of my favorite and most prolific movie watching and uh, and great um culture pop culture minds jedidiah airs jed thank you so much for joining me in the forests of uh, the frontier because the last time we're on the streets of la it's it's a
3: different different setting for sure uh <laughs> i I feel very, very good about it, though. My, I, I used to, when I saw this film for the first time, I did have Daniel Day-Lewis hair. And,
0: uh, oh, my goodness.
3: I, yeah, it was pretty amazing.
0: Oh, my uh, God. I, I demand a photo. I demand a photo. Fo- I don't care if you don't tweet <laughs> it, but I demand a photo of you with that hair.
3: <laughs> uh, I'll see if I can dig one up. I didn't have the body. I did, I did not have the uh, Daniel Day-Lewis uh full package there but but I, I had some pretty pretty beautiful hair
0: well look um i, I, I was gonna say the daniel day lewis hair has made many men make bad hair decisions but you know if you've already done it if you've already done it that's a that's a huge effort on your part i appreciate it very much so you know we're here at, well, i've been talking to a stack of people about michael man's 1992 last of the mohicans and you in your infinitely prepared and sort of uh, um all consumer of things written word and pop culture have done the hardest yards of I think anyone who's so far I've talked to is that you went back and literally revisited every single it seems version of last of the Mohicans that was in existence as well as going out and looking at some of the other James Fenimore Cooper adaptions, including the deer slayer, which according to you as starred Madeline Stowe, which I'd never even known until, uh, until I saw your tweet.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I And in all my uh, Madeline Stowe uh, uh, obsessiveness in the 90s especially, I, I, I can't believe I never never realized that. I wasn't on IMDb. It wasn't around. I guess that's the thing.
0: <laughs> that's the thing. So, yeah. man, we've already talked about him in a couple of episodes, one heat minute, but for fans out there, where does, where does something like Mohicans for you as such a noir contemporary crime guy like where does that sit in your conception this like this old world this forming of society it's kind of like not quite to your your deadwood levels but where does that where does that come for you in in your conception of kind of you know great movies great styles of movies where, where does that sit for you
3: it is absolutely absolutely wonderful uh standing for me i uh, both as a Michael Mann movie and as a movie. As a as a movie, I was way into this kind of fair long before crime stuff, long before crime stuff. Um, and it was the first Michael Mann movie I saw. I grew up reading the, not James Fenimore Cooper, but reading the like kids version and the comic book version of Last of the Mohicans. I loved the name. There was a TV show I know I saw a couple episodes of, and there were some made-for-TV movies. Deerslayer was one of them. I'm not sure if I actually saw that when I was uh, a kid, but I saw The Last of the Mohicans from 1977 when I was a kid, and um, you know, it, man's man's version is is easily the best, but it's uh, uh, it's fair. It's it's the kind of thing. F- you know, I grew up on on Fess Parker being Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett, <laughs> and uh, and the nineteen seventy seven Last of the Mohicans was very much, very much similar to uh, that kind of stuff. And and so I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV and movies, but that was that was something that I I could see, and um, and I I gobbled up the books. And of course, when the movie came out when in ninety two, uh, I did not. I, you know, I, I did not remember the plot. I didn't remember. I just knew the name and knew it was something I was attracted to, but holy cow, I was blown away uh, by what they did with it. It was, uh, I was, I got really excited when you talked about this uh, podcast being a thing. I told my wife and she just kind of, she rolled her eyes. She was like, last of the Mohicans, like, Every guy in college just loved that movie. You
2: know,
3: <laughs> uh, she was she was very annoyed by it. Um, I, I don't know that she ever saw the movie, but she just the the idea that just if you wanted to reduce a guy our age to you know uh, you just mention last of the Mohicans and you could you know probably disarm an attack or something like that. Cause they just want to <laughs> stop and talk about it and obsess over you know how how great it was and and uh uh so yeah that that's where i come into it and i do think it's a great michael mann movie and not nearly the outlier that uh that it seems to be on the surface uh which i hope we'll get into
0: yeah i i think i think anyone who's anyone who digs into michael mann's stuff and looks at sort of his thematic arcs and what he's into um Once you start to, uh, I think it's the overwhelming presence. You talk about like Daniel Day Lewis, and you're talking about a certain kind of a, you know, a um, a provincial kind of frontier throwback American hero that he is. He he's a kind of overwhelming presence just in like people's general memory. It's the hair, it's the stature, it's the it's being so forthright and cool and saying lines like "I'm looking at you, Miss," and feeling like you wish you could be that cool now in a contemporary sense, um, and, and and such a beefcake. But it just it sort of doesn't happen. It's I think when you when you start digging in, as Michael Mann does when he's conceiving of a film, when you start digging into the maguas of the world and the Colonel Monroe's and the Duncans and Koras and uh Chingachikooks and Unkus as their own individual characters in these settings and landscapes, you know, speaking to different political hierarchies and structures. It's just like, oh, this is his shit. Like this is This is absolutely the kind of movie that is his... Um, and, and perhaps the only outlier element of it in, in his more recent films is that it's it's the length that it is because, you know, it's very rare to see a film yeah. that's kind of under two hours that's a Michael Mann film um, except for th- things like even the Jericho Mile is, is probably one of them and, uh, and and Collateral, I think, just kisses the two-hour mark even though it feels so... like it's moving constantly, constantly, constantly but, yeah, I, I, it's definitely a Michael Mann movie definitely has all those things has a lot of those thematic echoes and th- Throwbacks to you know beginnings and endings and cycles of change and um, and big worlds happening around them and uh, and all those good all those good meaty subjects that just sort of subliminally speak to you over and over and over again even if you're not examining them it's just then when you come back as we do in this podcast and did on one heat minute you sort of go back and you're like god damn it this is so effortlessly dense um, and infinitely rewatchable
3: it is it's uh it's something that I come back to i you know because I am a crime guy I tend to uh I tend to rewatch his crime movies more often and yes. frequently you know probably uh, most of them at least once a year, some of them you know more than that and um uh, and because I tend to lean so so hard into those i i uh, sometimes don't uh, you know? I, I forget to go back to the Insider, or Ali, or Last of the Mohicans. Um, and every time I do, I'm like, God, why did I wait so long in between viewings? <laughs> this is you know just just amazing. And uh, and I'm oh God, I'm already tearing up just thinking about the the score on Last of the Mohicans. You know, that's one element that um, uh, it d- does seem like a bit of an outlier, uh, among, among man movies, um, for this one. Uh, but I tell you what, the strength, uh, I mean, music is always a, a big great factor in his, uh, stuff, but, but score itself is, you know, not, not very memorable and where it exists at all. Uh, but the fact that this score, I've been watching these 12 minutes over and over again, I just got that. <laughs> that score running through my head all the time now and i'm just kind of a big weepy mess uh, (laughs) uh, but also very bold very bold weepy mess uh but um i uh uh, it's making me think it's so strong it's making me think maybe i need to like listen to lincoln park a little more (laughs) some of the miami vice cuts uh, a better uh a more fair shake you know maybe you really uh, was on to more than uh, more than I give him credit for.
0: So. Yeah, I think I, I think it's also um, there's a focus in this movie that the the urban sprawl tends to inspire different flavors of music in what he's doing, and different big characters and arcs, you know, have their own sort of themes without necessarily having a central theme, like with him and Goldenthal and Heat, we've talked about it, like it sort of brings in this Lisa Gerrard stuff that he uses more sort of, um, uh, uh, more prolifically in something like The Insider a bit later, and he uses obviously Moby um, but there's those kind of, and he uses Moby again, there's kind of those elements where, you know, there's that consistency, but when he heard the gale, you know, when he found that central core Celtic melody, like every like everything then gets unlocked for him. And it's funny, um, if for folks who are listening to this episode, if you listen to the episode with Chris Tapley and Fran Hoffner, Fran talks about like being a film soundtrack nerd and listening to and obsessing over the soundtrack long before she ever saw the movie. And I think that that's like that's a power that some of Michael Mann's other movies maybe don't have in isolation. It's like you see the movie, you love the soundtrack or you love the different eclectic soundtrack that he pulls together to give and distill the same mood over a whole big sprawling epic, but Mohicans is like, you don't have to have ever seen the movie you put that score on and there's just something rousing that happens there's something that just like gets you every single time
3: Yeah, a Thief would maybe be the other Yeah, uh, tangerine the other dream one that fits yeah. in that category, yeah, yeah. Cause that's, yeah that's amazing and actually, you know, bring my wife back into it uh we saw the insider together i think it, it came out the year we got married and we went to the theater to see it and uh she got the uh the soundtrack to that with uh, lisa gerard and, yeah you know uh, and that was uh that was a mainstay in our house for uh for quite a while so mm-hmm. uh and, and i guess that one uh probably had some other cuts on there too i'm just thinking of of her stuff but uh but it, it, it held together as a as a whole album pretty well. So,
0: Yeah, look, so here we are. We've arrived, I think, in the best place to kick off in the last 12 minutes of The Mohicans. And sort of broadly, depending on the cuts you're looking at, we sort of kick off in the Huron camp um, with Duncan. Jed, what are the things in this final sequence? What are the moments that, like... You know, you, you've you just, and knowing you, you've watched it again and again. And for me, when I was preparing for this, I, I think I just, I had it, I had the final sort of 12 minutes just on a loop over and over and over again from the Sasham's decision all the way to the end and just like, you know, skip a couple of times on your DVD or your Blu-ray and go back again and just back again and back again. What are the moments that are really ringing true for you as just this pure exercise of, you know, you know, almost silent film and score storytelling?
3: well it is uh you know it's more than 12 minutes of nearly that i mean there's that the scene in the the camp uh where there's obviously some dialogue but god the the whole attack coming out the ambush uh the procession out of the fort the ambush the chase the you know on the river stuff is is all i, I it, it's what it's probably about forty minutes or so. Yeah, of it's it, dialogue re, re, free stuff.
0: relentless, <laughs> yeah. relentless through that yeah. whole, the whole sequence.
3: But the the last the last twelve minutes, uh, God, the the looks everybody gives, you know, when the, there is no the look Uncas gives to uh, um you know, that just says everything that needs to be said. He didn't have to, you know, he he didn't say, "Hey, I'm going to go uh, after." Uh, after Jody May I'm going to uh it, it was all understood it was all and it, and I noticed this time uh thinking about it uh he went around he went way out in front of uh of Magua and and his uh party and and uh, Chingachgook and uh, Nathaniel came up uh you know came up the rear and all that's just just part of the uh uh it's all communicated. It's all known, and and there's so many of those looks. You know, um, Duncan and uh, and Hawkeye have that look. Um, or it, maybe Duncan's actually looking at Cora when he's, uh, you know, over Nathaniel's shoulder when he's uh, giving himself up, but. Um, Magua and uh, Chingachgook have the the same look. I don't think he's look.
0: I don't think Magua. he's look. I, oh no! I sorry to interrupt, but I, I don't think he's look. I don't think he's looking at Cora. I don't think Duncan. Or in my in my mind, I've always seen Duncan as like never being able to actually look her in the eyes when he gives himself up to death. Like like when he's mm-hmm. in that moment, I think he's looking directly at Nathaniel slash Hawkeye, and he's looking at him, and he's like, take her and get out, like. I can't look at her anymore. If I'm going to make mm-hmm. this decision, I can't look at her anymore. But yeah, no, I totally agree. So I go on about the the Magua and Chingachuk exchange in, in gazes. Such a... Oh my well,
3: it, goodness. it got me thinking about... Um, you know, I love uh, Cormac McCarthy. Uh, I love to read his books. They're, the prose is, is amazing. And, and the movies don't always turn out <laughs> great. Um but, uh, there are
0: some people who've you know, been watching the, the counselor on repeat, who are going to yeah, get in touch with you, and I'm one of them. You I, know love
3: what? Movie. I love that. I, <laughs> I love, love the counselor. Counselor. <laughs> I love the counselor. I love the counselor. Really love it. <laughs> but uh, but there's there's mistakes made often with a lot of the like, especially kind of florid prose. Um, you know the the stuff that I love. I love Daniel Woodrell. I love William Gay, um, and and you see see adaptations of their um of their books on screen and and same with Cormac McCarthy sometimes one of the problems is the people who write the script also love the books and they love the prose and they're trying to put the prose as much of it into the dialogue or voiceover or something like that as they can and it you know it it doesn't It doesn't work so well on uh, on film as dialogue. It works in your head as you're reading it, you know, uh, or even out loud reading it off the page. But uh, but the Coens nailed something with um, No Country for Old Men where they didn't put that prose into any of the dialogue. Uh, They just—it's all in the faces, you know. It—they just got people with amazing faces to internalize it. <laughs> it's in their eyes. It's on their faces. And it's the same thing. I was watching, uh, you know, uh, um, Magwa and, and uh right before the final blow is delivered here, you know, and they just, they have that moment where they're just staring at each other. <laughs> and there's no speech. There's no, uh, there's nothing, nothing needs to be said uh I mean so much needs to be communicated but no nothing needs to be said and it's it's there in their faces um and I I think a lesser writer would have put in you know a very poignant or badass line or you know something like that uh right before that that happens and there's no need for that uh and it's better without it in fact because uh those actors and uh, that director and that cinematographer and that editor—they uh, they concentrated on on what needed to uh, be communicated, and they and they pulled it off. Uh, and trusted the the audience would would feel it, even if they didn't, uh, you know, couldn't say right off the bat what what exactly it was. I think those moments stick with the audience. And they say there was something there, wasn't there? Or I've even had people say, not necessarily about this film, but you know, in, in similar circumstances, they'll say, "Oh, you remember in the movie where, the, you know, so and so said that and that." And I've had to, you well, that that's communicated in the eyes. but <laughs> No one ever said that. No. And uh, no. I think that that probably happened a lot with this movie.
0: I th- I think I've always felt like Chingachgook says something, like one word. And it's only, like, in crazy amount of repeats in this that, like... And and then sort of my recollection not being tricked anymore to it, that, like, he doesn't. He just sort of shakes his head and looks at him, and he just doesn't need to. I think that that's... There's so many times where you 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 know when you're in, in a novel when you're constructing thought like you know there's so much where people say things in their thoughts that they don't actually say on their faces and that's the great dance that you can play in film is like you can have fun with a voiceover even comics do it really well and novels have to do it get a little bit more of a dance with their prose to sort of delineate what's actual thought versus what's being said in an exchange. But I yeah. think if a lot more people and, and this is like a great. Testament to Michael Mann as a, as a guy who doesn't treat his audience like idiots. Like he's, he's It's one of his most admirable qualities in all of his films is that he kind of just, he lets things sit there and like, you may not get everything, but you you may not get everything uh, in the same um, tangible and tactile way that you get in other films where you're like, yes, I've got a list of all those things and I understand exactly where people are coming from. He'll just sort of throw something out there, but it'll stay with you. Even if you don't quite fully and wholly comprehend it you'll it'll stay with you it'll be memorable and then you can go back and go okay that's that's spectacular but i think there's plenty of filmmakers that could take a leaf from mr michael mann and uh and and um uh, 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 uh mr columbus who his co-screenwriter in this case who adapted the uh the 36 version of mohicans is to like let's just cut Let's just turn everything into actions. Let's turn everything into gestures. Let's turn everything into gazes and just get really inside these characters and make them convey who they are. And then the balls of it is you're using Russell Means as a 50-year-old legendary activist and not an actor who's standing across right. from Wes Studi, who's like now a honorary Academy Award winner and like an incredible character actor in himself. And you've just got him, like you're relying on like one of the most mon- monumental moments of this huge movie. Um, you're resting it on his shoulders and God, he just absolutely crushes it.
3: He does. And he speaks, he does speak in the movie, Magwa, uh, Wes Studi, he speaks like three languages. Uh, and... It you know because I only speak one of them I I tend to lose track of uh, how amazing that is <laughs> yeah. uh, you know but he's he's going back and forth between Huron and and, uh, and Huron French,
0: Mohawk and French English
3: he's he's a uh, yeah no, that's that's worth an Academy Award right there I think
0: yeah I think his his latest award. He's his his honorary Oscar, uh, I'm calling it right now is the there's the Magua Makeup Award. Uh, because there's pretty much he's in the old timers of villains and, and to be in a movie with Daniel Day Lewis and and kind of almost make Daniel Day Lewis like un- unmemorable towards the end of this movie, it's like it's a feat. A feat of performing that is like rare, extremely rare.
3: You know, he's so good at, in the movie that it only took obsessively watching it uh, in the last week or so to really kind of have my eyes snag on his uh, his loincloth and leggings and how amazing a get-up that is. Yes. Those uh, those leggings are, uh, like, my wife would like me to, uh, you know, maybe wear pajamas or something like that. But <laughs> if I had something as stylish as that loincloth and leggings, I would... I would wear that around the house,
0: that would uh... Well, look, I, I, I mean, I could... we've, this is not the first photo I've asked for. Well, first it's the Daniel Day-Lewis hair, now it's the leggings and loincloth. I mean, Jed airs. there's a, there's a, there's a, I feel like there's a Tumblr account that could come straight out of this podcast, come tumbling out of this podcast, <laughs> if Tumblr wasn't now extinct. Um... But yeah, no, these, everything about the detail is incredible, right? Like you, you, some of the, for folks who, you know, you don't have to do too much deep diving. We try um, on this podcast, if there's any articles and and great pieces about Mohicans, we'll definitely reference them in the descriptions of the podcast and things like that. But there's just a tremendous um, making of documentary where they talk about all of the painters, particularly Thomas Cole, who inspired the look. Um, and, And when man was talking to his production designers, because, you know, the Mohicans, there's not a historic historically accurate record of like these people they had to base it off of you know uh you know other other nations of tribes that are around um to sort of build the mythology because it would have made the most sense um and so all the style all of that great get up all of the tattoos all of the the different war paint it's um yeah it's so so rich and and so detailed and 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 you know, uh, something something into the effect of like 900 um, Native American um, actors, both front, you know, talk, speaking and sort of background actors and stunt people were part of the part of the shoot. And so, it's not only the the physical and the tactile and the production design from Wolf Kroger, like building forts or building whole Huron camps. It's like the and the production designers themselves. It's it's these you know great background actors and actors that are sort of making up the numbers in war parties that just make it also so authentic.
3: And not just 900, uh, you know, American Indian extras. The best looking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, mean, Absolutely. I don't know how they found them all, but they're like everything about this movie is beautiful. The The score is beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful. The actors, every last one of them is just kind of achingly gorgeous to look at. And it's you know, in that way, I mean, the violence is beautiful. Everything in the movie is uh, is that way. and I just I remember in, you know in in one of those uh, college age uh, times I wasn't attacking anyone, but someone brought up Les than Mohicans, and I had to stop and talk about it. how beautiful everybody was, and how uh, you know, I'd just been last time I watched it, I was just trying to look at all the background faces and and uh, and you know, and all, that's that's composition, and it's it's costume, and it's it's makeup, and it's it's all of that. Uh, but jeez, just gorgeous, gorgeous production all the way around, right down to all the extras.
0: Yeah, and it's funny, when you've got a movie that you can just put F. Murray Abram as, like, a guy who has one line in the movie, like, you you really... That's like a flex. That's such a flex these days, because he's like... At that point, he's like... Uh, in 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 a couple of Best Picture nominees, at least, and he's just like, yeah, I'll play in the background for Michael Mann in this epic. Sure.
3: Yeah, and all the... I mean, even the... I mean, Jared Harris wasn't a person... You yeah. know, wasn't a name then, but... Uh, You know, you think Chiefs the Bonnie Timmerman or or man whoever picked him out. Like, yeah, they knew what they were doing. That guy went on to you know all these all these guys in little roles. You know, most of them anyway went on to have big uh, or at least longevity. Uh, you know there was a quality to him that uh, that lasted Eric Schweig, i can't believe he didn't become like huge
0: i can't believe it either that. when you said about I mean, beauty he his face is got right. he his face is just that you know he, he's a sort of in, incredibly handsome man and with an incredibly well proportioned jaw and you're like that guy's mm-hmm. a detective you know that that guy with a with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and an ill-placed tie and a like very pressed beautiful white shirt like that's Bogart looks like Bogart level smolder in his eyes and you're like how is this guy not you know been been in some long running maybe that's because we're biased in crime fans I like, I want that guy to be like my true detective for like 3 seasons like what what's going yeah. on in the world when Eric Schweig hasn't got a hasn't got a Guernsey to do that
3: I yeah I don't and I mean Knowing Day Lewis now, uh, you know, it it makes sense that he didn't go on to have a you know an action star career, which he absolutely could have had. But it seems like between the two of them, one of them would have, uh, you know, it was a hit, and they were both uh, very capable of uh, of doing that. I'm sure. Um, yeah, I can't believe.
0: Neither, neither did. No, And look, and with with Day Lewis, it's like you can see the attraction, right? Man seems to get the best out of like he'll he'll make a person who's you know an action star who doesn't seem like it. Like literally, Val Kilmer looks like a dumpy dude in Batman, and then he comes onto Heat, and he's like carved out of iron as Chris Chahalas, you know, there's just something about man and the, his approach to what action is in a film is completely different to other people's conceptions of it. So, you know, Schweig and Day-Lewis, they look amazing, like Day-Lewis has been, you know, hunting in the woods, living as a as an outdoorsman, he can literally do everything, he's obsessed to the point, you know, this guy needs to be able to do all of this stuff, and then Eric Schwieg is all complimentary, so like, you've got the difference of the who's probably lived in the woods for weeks, and you've got Eric Schwieg there, who just looks just as capable as he is. And they don't really talk about whether he had he was put through the same sort of scrutiny. And I don't think he actually was. But wielding a gun, wielding a tomahawk, running up those crazy mountain ranges, he, he still completely looks the part. They both look so phenomenal.
3: I was so exhausted watching him run on all fours. Up, up the hill. The yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, my God. I was so <laughs> exhausted. I just, like, had PTSD of, uh, you know back when I was active. <laughs> uh, it was a terrible time. It was terrible. <laughs> it was so much better not being active.
0: Oh, come on. You don't want to oh. go be an outdoorsman, run up giant mountain ranges in North Carolina, Jed?
3: You know what? I, I think of it like like writing. I don't really want to write, but I want to have written. <laughs> yes. I don't really want to be an outdoorsman, <laughs> but I want to have been.
0: <laughs>
3: I want to have that... Uh, in my you know uh,
0: feather in feather uh, in your boat
3: memories. well yeah and just to be able to think back on fondly you know even if nobody else knows <laughs> oh, yeah, that was good i liked that it's good to know that i i, I have that uh experience
0: we can start we can but, start the rumor from here this yeah podcast. no please do please start
3: <laughs> all the rumors are much more interesting than anything <laughs> actually happened to me
0: uh that's uh, Sorry, USA.
3: Well, I was going to I was going to jump into uh the the things that the main thing that seems like such a Michael Mann movie uh element of this um that you know, I I certainly wouldn't have known when I first saw it and certainly wouldn't have known uh until I was, you know, getting a little more obsessive about him as a filmmaker and 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 the themes that he he comes back to all the time but i think what makes this a michael mann movie more than you know the other elements maybe is the uh, the dichotomy the duncan versus nathaniel uh which is you know duncan representing uh society and nathaniel representing this sort of uh, rugged individualism uh which is runs through so many of his movies you know you yes. and 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 you kind of come down movie to movie with man maybe favoring one a little bit more than the other, but uh, you know he goes back and forth. It's like well maybe this, well maybe that. You know I mean obviously in heat you got the uh, um, you know Neil would be the the individualist and and Vincent would be the the society man playing you know with the rule of law and um and and acting on behalf of a great you know a population and and uh and meals like out there for himself and you know yeah he bothers a few people he's hunting he's things like that, but he's you know he's he's very very tight knit with his uh uh who he feels like he has any kind of responsibility toward or or things like that, and the same with uh, Frank and Thief versus, you know, I mean, the whole tension of that movie is, is he going to get pulled into, even though it's not rule of law, is he going to get pulled into
0: a bigger, he a he's bigger entity, a bigger gun. machine?
3: Yeah, like, I don't want to be beholden to anybody. I don't want these attachments. Uh, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Um, or feeling like I owe that. And, you know, Public Enemies is the same way with Purvis and Dillinger, and then Dillinger's also feeling the pull of, of organized crime, and he's got that, you know, sort of revulsion toward that. Uh, I mean, right down the line, pretty much all of his movies have this kind of theme. Um, you know, even the insider. You know, you got two guys uh, kind of in their own not-overlapping rules uh of law you know they're they they're neither one of them are individuals but they're both trying to navigate you know the ethics of journalism the ethics of of violating um or you know how can i tell the truth without violating uh, you know this contract I signed, and how you know. I think I think it's a. It, I
0: think it's almost threes too in the insider. That's what I think. I, I totally agree with you that Duncan, the 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 economy of those characters, and that being so rife in there. But I also love that in some of these man movies, there's like a third option, and I would argue that like Dennis Farina in Manhunter, um, uh, as Jack, is that kind of he's like a third option. Like he's like someone who's kind of navigating this in between, and Duncan is a mm-hmm. staunch monarchist and so he just sort of comes in from a hierarchical perspective and feels like you know there's ownership and there's property and there's things and then you've got Nathaniel who's been adopted but the the dichotomy I think is like in two ways like Nathaniel's family are killed and he's adopted by people. Marwa's family are killed and he's enslaved by people so like the the only difference really is that kind of that, that you've got that and then Nathaniel sort of tends to lean into the traditional culture of the Mohican people um, uh, from from that perspective, and then you've got Magua who does this, you know, from the, from the opposite side, just sees that the only way forward in the future is to act like a European colonist because there's no point in continuing to operate in whatever the paradigm of Huron law is um, for the future because he's sort of seen the writing on the wall and he's kind of right. So I actually think it's like, I think what you've jumped onto here, Jed, is like the great comparison of that there's these three guys. It's not just two. It's like, it's a, it's a way for him to have had the theme sort of expand further from his, you know, traditional sort of binary sort of thing that expands a little bit and little bits and pieces into like a triumvirate. And even in The Insider does it too. The Mike Wallace is the outlier. You know, you've got Lowell, who's the sort of once radical, you know, really staunchly, um, uh, uh, got a staunch sort of integrity about what the news is. You've got Jeffrey Weigand, who's got this great integrity, but also understands how the world works. And then you've got Mike, who's kind of skating between those two poles between them. And and the real tension is in those two guys trying to find their definitive selves. And But yeah, I, I love I love their bounce. I love the philosophical spectrum that man likes to play with with his characters, because none of the guys end up being wholly good and none of the guys end up being wholly bad. Um, you kind of get to play this lovely game of like in the circumstances where I'm standing right now on the precipice of a mountain in North Carolina on the frontier is the decision I'm making. Right.
3: Right. And you've got the the personified in in these characters, but but the, the sort of crisis of two civilizations uh, and two ways of living coming together, you know, with the, um, you know, I mean, it's writ large right in the title with Last of the Mohicans, uh, you know, uh, our time is coming to an end or our way of life is coming to an end. But even with Duncan, I mean, he's having a crisis uh, of uh, the, you know, the crown, the colonial is like, yeah i identify as this you know i've got this um this code of honor you know it it says this is this and this is that but he comes to the reality uh you know thousands of miles away from uh england <laughs> where you know he's trying to make the world england and it's not going great he can't get <laughs> yes. anybody to uh you know nobody else buys into his ver- vision of uh of how the world should be these colonials don't want to fight for their sovereign you know like what there's other problems they have or something they you know (laughs) nobody's worldview is lining up uh with his and he's um you know he he makes he, he comes down on the wrong side of an issue again and again but he's got a lot of he's he's true to himself. You know, he 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 reacts immediately and then he he considers and and comes back and and circles around and it, and it seems kind of kind of weasley sometimes, but but I think it's honest. Uh but I think it's it's also just sort of the you know, he's standing in for the the uh the old world in general, the old European uh world in general. Is it is it over? You know, uh, do, can you know, do you call yourself loyal subjects of the crown? And, you know, well, no, I don't call myself <laughs> subject to anything. I mean, you know, that's I was like, what the hell? This is not, this is not what I grew up with. This has been indoctrinated in me. This is, uh, I've been there. I know what I, you know, feeling for, I know why I, uh, you know, I, I, joined the army and, and things like that. And, and I believe in this, but, but removed, you know, just geographically, uh, this far, um, it, it begins to also remove you, um, psychologically, spiritually, um, uh, philosophically from, from that. And, and so I, it's a beautiful film of these two cultures kind of having, Sharing a crisis from uh you know from across uh from from opposite ends, maybe but um and there's so many shots in the movie of people squaring off you know uh and they and maybe they are trying to look like specific paintings that I'm not familiar with, but they're so so dramatically posed, you know the room full of militia and the room full of red coats and the uh, the the French army and the uh, the British army and and uh, Chingachgook and Magua and they, I mean there's just so many great images of people standing in opposition to each other, uh, just in direct symmetrical oppo- opposition. And I think it's you know it's these two cultures basically. They're <laughs> what's in between them is the moment and the future and neither one of them is going to get into that future without bleeding without (laughs) um you know leaving something of themselves behind without changing because of what they have to do to you know to to win the right to be there in the first place so uh yeah Magua's uh Magwa's bold idea is you know one one way and and uh um i think i think uh uh duncan's relenting that uh yeah maybe Nathaniel in the end maybe maybe he's onto to something you know maybe maybe i'm the part that should be left behind here and and he and cora ought to go off off together and uh you know but standing in for just in general, maybe there are compromises uh, to um, this sort of absolutism that I, I've grown up with and, and had, had had ground into me.
0: Well, I think that is the perfect exit point for us to talk about this because Mr. Jedair is hearing you uh, talking about the, the the only way through the future is blood is maybe one of the most beautiful and 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 on point and also like achingly melancholic things i think i've heard you ever say <laughs> um so uh as always mate this has been an absolute pleasure and uh thank you for coming back for another dalliance with another michael mann film despite my promises to the contrary
3: <laughs> well thank you for uh being duncan and and relenting and and reconsidering (laughs) your uh your initial knee-jerk uh pronouncements so uh good on you thanks for doing this and thanks for having me it was a lot of fun i was really excited to talk about this movie
0: oh look thank you jed thank you so much my friend this has been great Up the press, there is an emergency addition to the wonderful chat that I've just had with the incredible author and uh, writer Jedediah Ayres, because in the throes of talking about the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, I try and hone people's focuses, and as a host, you find opportunities to put an exclamation point on a show, but I had to come back because Jed said yesterday so you know nicely about his experience on the show he had a great time but he had so much more to say and one of the things that he had to say was uh, a site that has been in existence really since since Mohicans was released almost it feels like it's one of the looks like one of the oldest sites on the internet it was made in 1997 called mohicanpress.com and their sort of showcase interview their showcase (coughs) excuse me their showcase interview their biggest get on the site is a chat with Chingachakook, Russell Means. And so Jed had, in his discovery and research of this, had found this site, which I had yet to find. I don't even know if you can Google search for the site. I'm trying to now. I just had a direct link to one of the most forthright and incredible interviews you're ever going to read about an actor's experience on a set or in a Michael Mann film. And so Jed sort of tagged and said, I would love to talk about this. And in the throes of kind of crazy middle of the night, me on the other side of the world reading tweets, I've had to emergency re-record this edition to our discussion. Jed, welcome back. It's the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans.
3: It's like the last 13 minutes now, I think. I think we've we've added an extra, or gone back in time, or
0: something. Something, something, Not not added any minutes to the movie, but added certainly a few minutes to our um our wrap up of it. Holy dooly! For people who are just listening to this, will absolutely be in the description. Can you give a little bit of context around how you'd heard about the existence of? You know, uh, you'd heard about some of the things that are contained within this interview around Russell Means from a friend of a friend of yours, and then we can dive into some of, like, I guess, the key uh, pivotal parts of it. But full credit to Mahican Press um, for getting the interview, and we'll absolutely link back. But just reading here, some incredible stuff uh, from them uh, discovering in this interview.
3: Sure. So I'm a I'm a crime writer. I, I write I write novels about people doing bad things and. Uh, uh, I used to uh, write a blog for Barnes & Noble. Uh, I wrote their mystery uh, blog. They had blog for several different genres, science fiction, romance, cooking, parenting, whatever. I wrote their mystery blog for a few years. And in the course of doing so, I you know got a lot of new books and things like that. And there was this book that really flipped my lid. It was called Pike by Benjamin Whitmer. I ended up interviewing Benjamin Whitmer and then going and meeting him at a convention and we kind of hit it off and I've gone out to Denver a couple of times and stayed with him. And uh, we've just had this friendship for a few years and he's one of these guys uh, who's got a wild backstory and and, um, and he's, he's great to talk to. He says really um, inflammatory things all the time. He's always getting... Uh, 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 chewed out on social media by, by people who uh, (laughs) don't appreciate his sense of humor or whatever. But, but he told me a story about, you know, Russell Means after Russell Means died, he was like, Oh, my friend Russell died. And he, he started telling me these uh, stories about, you know, he, he was not like best friends with Russell Means or anything, but he, he, he spent some time with him and, and would hear these stories. And, um, talked some about uh, less than Mohicans and one of the stories that he said was that uh, Russell had tried to uh, had been key in organizing a strike on the set and according to my friend according to uh, Russell Means the uh the fallout from his participating in these was that his role was severely or sharply cut and uh... anyway i was before doing this show uh... i wanted to find out a little bit more about that so i found this interview on this site and uh... and russell means does talk about uh... talk about the strike and things like that and it's just it's a wonderful interview um... the the fan site, you know, the movie fan site that hosts it even has a little disclaimer at the end, you know, basically saying, hey, look, uh, we don't want to piss off any fans <laughs> of, of the movie or, you know, Russell says these things and he's, you know, we're just happy he was on here. You know, we don't, uh, you know, we can't validate certain things. Or Well, you know, well, you know, Jed, we I'd love to just opinion. interject
0: briefly to, to, yeah. to read that uh, verbatim. This is the disclaimer that follows the interview. As we said in our introduction, Russell Means is an activist. He's a visible leader of the American Indian movement. He's been very, very outspoken on a number of issues regarding Indians and non-Indians. While he's inspired many to admire and support his positions, he has also provoked many to express their opposition to both his words and his actions. We pursued this interview knowing full well that Russell Means is controversial. Being somewhat familiar with previous statements and writings of his, we knew there were many positions he took that we agreed with, but many we also disagree. There are statements made in this interview believed to be incorrect. Nonetheless, it was not our intent to debate, but to interview. We were not to express our opinions or relate our perceptions, but to invite Russell Means to offer his. He generously did so, and we thank him for that. And then I'll, I'll, I'll just get to the line which you said, which is nonetheless, we do feel we've covered much ground and hope to have brought out things in interest to many of the last of the Mohicans fans who will read this. It's our primary objective to satisfy the curiosity we have in many regards to Russell's Last of the Mohicans experiences. Hopefully the interview has succeeded in doing that. Wow.
3: It's a hell of an interview. It's it's very candid. He doesn't give any fucks. He just, you know, uh, he was 51 when he was filming it, and it was his first acting role, and, you know, he didn't have a long career. Uh, I don't think he felt like he was putting much on the line. <laughs> to, no, to not speak, at all.
0: Not
2: speak at all. Out.
3: Uh anyway, yeah, I found it very, very fascinating. He was saying uh This interview like was, was actually about
0: twenty years ago. January 18, ninety nine. It's a twenty year old interview with Russell Means. Seven <laughs> seven years actually about seven, eight years after actually filming the, the film.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and it starts off with him uh talking about how he got cast and how he insisted on being uh, Flown out to audition michael mann wanted to see him uh because he was involved in uh aim the american indian movement uh and and michael mann liked the idea of having him in there and he wanted to see if he could act and so he he <laughs> he wanted to have him out and you know russell means said know anything about hollywood i guess and he was like yeah sure fly me out and i'll i'll come do this and but I only fly first class or something, and he showed up at the airport, and they hadn't—they had a coach coach ticket for him, and he just turned around and walked out, and figured that was the end of his career. <laughs> Anyways, it, it's a very frank, prickly, and funny interview, um, but he talks about being on set, and the uh, the Indian American Indian extras, like 900 of them, who we already said were the best looking 900 American Indian extras. In the country, apparently, yes. all the ugly ones were just SOL. But, but these guys on the movie set uh, started striking. According to means here, they were striking because they had horrible uh, living conditions. Yes, uh, you know, it was. Uh, it, you can read the interview. It sounds it sounds awful. Um, just crammed and hot, and you know, uh, condemned buildings, overcrowded, and uh, and you know, not being paid very well, apparently, anyway as they well as well as in,
0: in addition to that, there's, according to Russell Means and this is uh, <clears throat> where I think some of the dispute disclaimer comes in was around some of the heads of departments that had either quit or gotten fired uh, around the production, and so there'd been you know there's a uh, um, yeah there's there was a, a lot of talk around okay. There there are these people leaving. They're not getting along in this production. They've kind of been appointed and then Michael Mann got his crew together. Um, But then once they were sort of striking, it it doesn't appear, or according to Russell Means, it's that Daniel Day-Lewis was there too. And they were both striking. (laughs) Like Daniel Day-Lewis and Russell Means and the cast were striking um, to to get these guys more more pay.
3: More pay, better conditions, all that. And um, yeah, I mean, he's he's you know clear in the way he speaks uh he doesn't lay this on michael mann or anything like that but he says no. you know uh he was obviously pissing him off <laughs> It was a frustrating thing it was um so uh yeah i i would recommend everybody just read read the interview if that sounds if that sounds interesting i don't want to miss misspeak on too many uh too many fine points um mm uh but yeah it's a it, it sounds like it was a pretty tumultuous uh production and he he says that he thinks michael mann actually paid for it at the oscars at the academy um for uh for firing um a lot of the the production heads um that you know that he pissed off the academy and that's why it was nominated for the awards it should have been um but I can't. Uh, he said the one, the one production head that didn't get fired is is the only uh, the only word it was nominated for. I, I didn't look. Yeah, that the, up, the, but, it was uh, the
0: one of one of. I think it won two Academy Awards for saved, Yeah, who, who won? Who won? Uh, in in his category. Look for people who are listening to this now. You're listening into the seventh episode. This is a uh, Brendan Hodges and Jed airs. Um, you know, dynamic duo uh, of information. You would have heard from Dante Spinotti. Like Dante Spinotti dropped the bomb on me. I wasn't, I was completely unaware of it. And I think for folks who are uh, outside of the journalism, uh, outside of the, the in-depth journalism that would have happened around the production, would have had really no idea that, um, that there was a second cinematographer Involved in this film, and Dante Spinotti, you would hear talks in a lot of detail about that. He talks about the speed with which they were moving. He talks about the the scale of the production. Talks about, you know, even the great Wes Studi being injured for two weeks um, on set—a knee injury that you can sort of uh, see if you are now going to have a look at it after you've listened to that episode. So, reading this interview is is a real fascinating one. And, and what I think is really fascinating and a credit to Wes is that he talks about very forthrightly so that it's some of the people around Mr. Mann as in who are uh, who are helping coordinate this massive effort are uh, the kind of people who have the blind spots about what's happening. And it's like Michael Mann as an artist, as a genius, and even says emphatically he would work with him again. He's like, he's the guy, he gets it. You don't change a lick of his script. I think some of those things are really fascinating. And it 's something that I would encourage everyone to read and not skip a beat of like read and e- explore this lengthy enduring interview because it has some wonderful detail and clarification and qualification and even some great American Indian movie rankings that might make your head explode um, but uh, you know it's it's real it's a real ripper and Jed I just want to say you know i haven't done an emergency addition to any of the one heat minute podcasts. Um, I certainly didn't think I was going to need to do one for here, but I thought it is, in the spirit of being extremely thorough and never being afraid to shy away from critical voices that are involved, especially an account from the, the now dearly departed icon that is Russell Means, I thought it was pretty essential that... I sort of wrangled it and credited your good self, at least for passing me on to Mohican Press. And for those Mohican Press fans out there, uh, and, and, and if if you are listening to this podcast, wow, what a, what a resource you've got. So I'll make sure I link the site into the description of this podcast and anything else that I talk about. But uh, huge, enduring fans of another time. Who were really heavily involved, and now these years later, um, we're we're trying to build together a podcast that sort of appreciates uh, what you guys were already onto, um, well, 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 earlier than uh, some of us. So uh, thank you guys for doing that. But Jed, just wow! Like this is a this is a hair curler of an interview. This will (laughs) just this is outstanding.
3: It is, it is, and uh, you know, thanks to uh, my buddy Benjamin Whitmer, and you ought to all go read his books and definitely. uh, Uh, definitely invest in him. He's worth it.
0: Wow. When you said Jed, there was more to say, (laughs) (laughs) you were right. You were right. Indeed.
3: Yeah. It's uh yeah, I really enjoyed it. And that, uh, I don't know if in Australia that, um, uh, that little sort of documentary that's on, on prime, if it's available there, but, uh, uh, yeah, he, he does some more talking. He doesn't necessarily talk about the Moonkin's, but he's, you know, pretty candid speaker. And and he goes off the rails a little bit in some ways, but uh, meanders a little bit. But uh, I, I found it a pretty interesting, pretty interesting um, viewing for the most part. It's about 35 minutes long.
0: Fascinating. Gonna add that into the description too, guys. Jed airs, you're a legend. Thank you again.